Hey everyone, welcome back to the last episode of Pope Francis Generation. I'm so happy to be back after missing a couple of episodes, all kinds of crazy stuff at work and life, but wanted to make a final show here with Paul. Hey Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to talk to you again. We were just saying how it's it's been like a month. Uh, and to clarify, it's just the last episode of the season. We will be back. Mm -hmm. Wait, what did I say? Last Show? Last episode, yeah. No, oh, okay, of the season. There we go. God willing, we'll be back. And so we'll talk about that towards the end of this. You're you're working on some things. You got some new seminars or workshops coming up. So we'll we'll talk about that. So this is what's the goal for this here? It's kind of a wrap up. What are the key topics we're planning on talking about today? Yeah. So we recorded several interviews. Um, well, first of all, there were a few interviews that you weren't able to make it at, and then and then we recorded, you know, a lot of them about a month ago. So we haven't connected, and I wanted to wrap up the season by, um, after you've had a chance to, to listen to this, the, some of the episodes you've missed, um, mm -hmm. but to just kind of give a recap and a wrap up and the thoughts from those episodes after we've sat with those conversations for about a month, what's been lingering, what's stayed with mm -hmm. us, um, what's kind of grown from that, and go yeah. from there. I like that. That sounds great. There can be challenge sometimes with information overwhelm, so doing recaps with noobs like myself who need catechesis. Um, so I'll probably try to ask questions, um, which is kind of my job anyway. So let's get into it. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world, and those are the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the Teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. Can you tell that we've practiced that a bunch? <laughs> you know, it's a lot easier to do that with you instead of by myself. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was watching you do that. It's like, oh, that's rough, poor guy. I could see your mind kind of <laughs> jumping over the, the different parts. So. Uh, so, so so, I want to start um, mm -hmm. because we haven't connected in, in about a month. Um, what has been some of your takeaways from the past episodes that we've recorded this season? Wow. So that's a very big question. I'll make one thought and then punt it back over to you to get more specific. But um, I think there's there's been a key uh, undercurrent throughout this whole thing, which uh, actually kind of culminated in the discussion, the most recent discussion that you had. And pardon me, what was his name? Talking about moral injury? Uh, Dr. Marcus Mesher. Marcus Mesher. I swear all I could see when I looked at him was Ryan Reynolds' younger bearded brother. <laughs> I had I had that same thought too as I was interviewing him. <laughs> okay, so it's not just me. Um, anyhow, this undercurrent of, of spiritual abuse, moral abuse, and the fact that there has been a lot of it that has been unintentionally systematized. And uh, I think the word metastasized is also appropriate. It's just gotten worse. And then we've thrown social media and live TV, you know, as a spotlight on this problem. And now we can't get away from it in maybe a good way and in a bad way. And there's, there's kind of no hiding now from the light that needs to, to be shown on these things. And it's, it's been really challenging. Um, it's really challenging. And that's, you, you've asked a couple of different people, I think, the question, or maybe it's going to come up today. I was looking at the show notes, like, why why be Catholic with all of this this rot in the in the bark of Peter? Like, how could 
what sort of credibility do we have to stand on to invite people to come and join? You know, the water is not very nice. Everyone's peeing in the pool. Like I like that you said earlier. It's very accurate, unfortunately. And um, I mean, and again, just to reference that conversation, I think he's exactly right that this is why the Holy Father is calling the Synod, because we've um, kind of we've been forced into this light of global almost attention uh, from the rank and file, from the pew sitter. You know, all of the curtains are now open. Everybody can see and everything that's going on. The hierarchy can't hide behind, like we used to in the past, distance or, or formality. You know, all of that's been eradicated. And the Holy Father is now able to, to tweet and, and, and answer off the cuff to journalists who are tweeting while he's talking on plane rides. You know, it's, there's an impossible sense of immediacy that uh, is just how the world works today. So, um, but the, the church hasn't yet adapted to that. And a lot of the, 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 the sins and the problems um, are extremely painful. And, and so you've brought on a variety of people to talk about this and to show that it is real. And uh, the, you know, like on my end, what I'm hearing a lot of times is the, um, uh, the, the unwillingness to see it because it's a monumental thing. And when you talk about something being systemic, just the idea of it is, is too monumental to, to face. Um, and that's kind of why I think a show like this, and like what the Holy Father has been repeatedly doing in a lot of his books, is trying to dice it up into smaller, more manageable pieces, like let's have a synod, you know, let's, let's have multiple synods, let's assign new responsibilities to people, let's talk about creation, let's talk about, you know, break it up into more manageable pieces because then people can see the next step to get to get going and i think that's what you've been doing haven't you with your your guests throughout this uh this past season partly because it's your you have a charism for this and that's why you're going into the work that you're doing um but we do have to identify the problem as monumental as it is so that we can then find the one little area where we can start going to work and and i feel like <laughs> Uh, and identifying the problem, I feel like I'm finding more, like more and more layers to the problem. Uh, yeah. So, so like with moral injury, um, when I first read Dr. Mesher's article, his research, uh, about a year ago, uh, back in January. Um, so I was really struck because he talks about the in the article he talks about the the five dimensions of moral injury that that, that are impacted by mm -hmm. this experience of betrayal. Mm -hmm. So those are things like um, our identity, our sense of our inherent goodness, our experience of shame. Those are things like our ability to make moral judgments. Those are things like our feeling safe and being able to. Um, be safe enough to trust others and be vulnerable with others. And those are things like our trust in institutions, um, especially institutions that have or claim to have moral authority. Right. And I hear that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that is so ubiquitous that it, it feels like that's just reality, that that's just the water mm -hmm. that we're swimming in. And I think about mm -hmm. someone pointed out to me um, in the past week as we, we were talking about this episode and she was like, man, that explains a lot about the angry Catholics on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. Like they're all morally injured. Yeah. And, 
And then I was reading an article earlier this week about um, the Archdiocese of Seattle's going through restructuring. And um, anyways, there was an article about that and priests were interviewed uh, for the article and they were talking about how they just feel such distrust of the hierarchy and distrust of their own bishop. And I'm like, yeah, because the priests are morally injured too. Um, There's a whole thing. Yeah. And like, <laughs> you know, I've said this, I hear Catholics say this, you know, like we're a church full of sinners, we're a church full of broken people. But there's a real sense, I think we're, we're a church full of traumatized people. And I don't think we take that sufficiently seriously in how I absolutely agree there was a podcast i listened to that really impact or just impressed me um i was driving around scottsdale arizona which is like driving around the inside of a very beautiful oven and <laughs> yep i've been down by there 50 degrees yeah and uh what was the name of this guy his name uh, he hardcore histories his name every time oh, yeah. he puts out it's okay. dan carlin he's dan great. carlin amazing guy and um he did one one multiple multi-part series on supernova in the east i think it was and it was about the dropping of the atomic bombs and he covered all kinds of different things but the thing that that helped me understand where a lot of people are coming from in this past century which i'd kind of known but hadn't had been so clear to me was the the effect of the nuclear scare leading to the Cold War and this constant simmering septic sense of stress that everybody lived under, no matter where you were, for decades. And then um, the two world wars, and of course, nobody knew that we would not have a third. And um, we're at a point where there's a new generation uh, does not have firsthand experience of even survivors of these nuclear, this nuclear period or even the war and the world that we now live in is the worst that we've perhaps experienced in the first world west might be 9 11 uh, unless you're in um south america mike has been talking about a lot what's been going down there and things like ukraine you know that the, those are kind of like shocks to the system but those they're incredibly traumatic um situations anyhow that long-running trauma um that impacts you. That creates fear and terror in your politics. And I can understand why we would become so radically partisan because you put the wrong person in charge and it could rip everything apart. And you know nobody trusts anybody. So I can understand that. But, but um, the church is supposed to be a safe place. Well, it's supposed or to be, but that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. The church is made up of all these people. And instead of, instead of us, and I think this is where, like you said, we're, we're we're traumatized. We're living in the world and we're also making up the church. And then we're, we're bleeding out of our wounds into how we live out, um, being church. And instead of it being the other way around and that, that point you said right there about our priests are being traumatized. There's a, there's a point at which, um, priests are not supposed to be the be all end all. And they're not supposed to be the moral high ground and the Obi-Wan Kenobis that have all the answers and make it all work. They have a, they have a, from my understanding here, very specific and critical role in, in everything, but they're not always going to be our teachers. And that's not even practical, um, for them to have all those answers. 
uh, and that's why the, the council was called. The popes have been insistent. We all are the church, but we're all traumatized. And now all of a sudden, I think there's a, there's a new layer of trauma that happens when something's been done in the dark and then all of a sudden there's a family intervention and then that's all brought out and all extended family is there and you're live streaming it. And that's kind of what the church I think is going through right now. And it's terrifying. I, I think, so, so something that, something that Dr. Mesher pointed out that, that I'm still unpacking that, that I think is really crucially important. He says, moral injury is caused by the experience of betrayal. So you think about betrayal. So like one example he gave was, um, cause for his research, uh, you know, they interviewed, they inter had long interviews with many survivors of clerical sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And one of the themes that came up, I remember him talking about was how some of the survivors, when they did speak up, the response they received from, uh, the church, uh, whoever whoever was representing the church or the diocese for them mm -hmm. was so poor that it was it itself was another experience of betrayal right yeah. um but but i think that's the case too where there's a lot of people who, who feel betrayed in the church there's um because so clerical sex abuse and cover-up of that is probably the greatest source of betrayal in the church but there are people who feel betrayed um you know there's there's progressive catholics who feel betrayed um by the church not going far enough after the council there's more traditional catholics who feel betrayed by the church going too, too far, far after the council yeah. um i'm sure that every single one of of the popes after the council have caused people in the church to feel betrayed by them because of their specific priorities. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I also think all the popes after the council have like participated in this culture of institutional self-protection as well, which mm -hmm. itself. So like, <laughs> um, not that this is a current news podcast, but um, I just saw it today. I think it was yesterday. Our, uh, the archbishop of, Baltimore just released a statement. So if I'm recalling the news correctly, so don't take my word for it, look it up. Um, off of memory, uh, the so the state of Maryland had a big grand jury attorney general investigation of clerical sex abuse. And this past year that came out. And then after that came out, there was a move legislatively to get rid of the statute of limitations for um uh survive uh for um child sex abuse and the diocese of of baltimore opposed the legislation to get rid of the statute of limitations that effort failed and um the, the legislation was changed in order so now there's no statute of limitations and that goes into effect in october so the archbishop just released this statement saying how terrible it's going to be for the church because of all the money it's going to lose from all the lawsuits that are going to happen. And that may be true, hmm. but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't headline that. I mean, that's not. Yeah. Like where... how, how is anyone who's a survivor of clerical sex abuse, let alone someone who's a survivor of clerical sex abuse in that diocese, <laughs> how are they hearing this statement and how is the statement not yet another experience of betrayal 
because leaders in the church are choosing to protect the institution above yeah. the harm that's being done to vulnerable people in the church. And like all that had to happen, maybe not all that had to happen, but the archbishop could have had a conversation with the survivor of abuse and said, hey, this is the statement I'm thinking about making. How's that? How, how do you respond to this? Right? Because the statement reads like he consulted lawyers and that was it. Um, wow. It's frustrating, which isn't, yeah, I'm not trying to pick on one person, um, but I think that is an example of a systemic problem in the church right. that, that, that goes all the way to the top mm-hmm. and has gone all the way to the top where people to the point where I think a lot of Catholics just presume that the church is going to protect its assets above mm-hmm. prioritizing people who've been harmed. Yeah. And that's what um, fascinated me about the, the conversation on moral injury, where he says, um, uh, we need a new kind of church. We need the, a different understanding of it um, because it has to be put together or assembled or sort of structured in a different way that allows more, like he said, the more of the dynamics of the Holy spirit. I take a lot of inspiration for what the Holy father has been doing and how he likes to go about things. Cause it, it pulls in a lot of that. And it probably speaks to my sort of Latin South American heritage and how he goes, goes about things. But, um, one of the other, the other podcasts I love following is the regeneration podcast up from, up in the Michigan, New York area with um, Mike Sauter and uh, Michael Martin. And they're all about this same sort of thing. Like how do we re- bring regeneration into every part of Catholic living? Um, things like this idea, this understanding of how we as church engage with or interact with um, the world itself and not just sideline churching as punching in getting my holy happy meal and then coming back out as much as i love well i won't name the website there's been a meme that's been going around and every time i see it it makes me so mad because it seems so inappropriate or just incorrect where they'll show a line of batteries okay and there's there's two rows the top row has sunday you go receive communion got a green battery and then every day gets a little bit less until it's saturday and you're at a red battery sunday green battery again you're you know you're you're out of jesus juice or as opposed to people who go to communion every day, man, look at that green battery every single day. I'm like, God doesn't work that way. That's not a, I, I'm thinking of the poor Japanese, you know, in during the, the, the great silence that, that fell across Japan or, or any martyr at any point who have been on fire with so much more Jesus than the, the narcissistic person who won't shut up at coffee hour about, everything they're mad about, you know, and, and just, you don't want to talk to them because yeah, there is not a lot of Jesus going on in you. So it's this, the, I, I, I had a friend, this was years ago, uh, you know, and he, he said this half serious and half laughing. He said, um, if I, something like, if I were to, if I were to ever doubt, um, the doctrine of the Eucharist, it's because, some of the people I know who go to mass every day are, are some of the, the most like selfish and narcissistic people I know. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be helping. Um, and I've seen, I remember a guy uh, when I was back in college, 
And I didn't know what to do with this because he walked away for that exact reason. He's like, I showed up. I did my time. I felt nothing. So what's the point? And that's something that actually prompted me to, to start to wonder, well, what am I, what am I, I mean, I'm not feeling anything either, but I'm doing the time, you know, you should show up and get up in here with me or else we're all going to burn. You know, it's taken me 10 years to realize, no, son, that's, that's the wrong, that is wrong, but that's just, that's just catechesis. That's how we go about it. So that line right there, like you said, in the last conversation, we need to reimagine a new, a new approach to being church and not yeah, just that was that uh, was from dr mesher yeah from dr yeah. mesher um because this over the over clericalization and i think and again, this is so interesting this point you made about how we're all traumatized priests are growing up in traumatized families the catechesis that has been brought down there's an element of of spiritual abuse and trauma inherent in, in how it's being communicated often um, so often not rooted in the kinds of things that like you've opened me up to so much in the last three, four seasons um, together to, um, to hunger. I love your turn of phrase, the relentless love that God has for every single human person. Um, absolutely unconditional and relentless. And I heard that as a kid and it didn't make, I didn't, didn't pick it up, but to actually use that as a, a foundation for how we go about every interaction and every point of catechesis. I think that um, if we start doing that, if we start doing that, not just the catechesis differently, if we start doing the witness differently, that impacts how we go about catechesis. And we then stop lionizing the hierarchy and the poor clergy. Um, how do I say, like we put so much focus and this is what clericalization is. We put, put them all on pedestals and so much focus and attention on, on them leading us as captains of the ship to get us out of this mess. And it's, that's not how this is supposed to be constituted. They're leaders of a specific element um, of this dynamic that the Holy Spirit is engaged in, but we all have an extremely important part to play, but we have no idea what that is. So, yeah, and I'm still, uh, a few years ago, there's a document that the International Theological Commission wrote about synodality, and I have it saved, and I haven't read it yet. It's like it's like Michael Scott from The Office, where he's like, read it, I own it. Um, uh, I haven't gotten to it yet, um, so I know as much about synodality as anyone else who reads. Yeah where Peter is in National Catholic Register. And, and one little sidebar about the use of the word trauma, like when, when we use it, we're not, a lot of words are like trigger words or whatever are used in a very dismissive way. Like people saying, God, I literally died when I saw this. Like, no, you didn't. So there's an over-exaggerated use of a word. I think that when we're using it, especially you, and, and I'm trying to too, we're using it in a very intentional and serious way. The whole point of trauma is, is the, the, um, impact of something that stops you functioning as an integrated person you can't see a way forward you can't move or act or imagine it's so violating to your person that you can't move or see the next step and you disintegrate as in, in the idea of being a human person it breaks apart you kind of lose uh, if a person is a being with um what is it intellect and free will you lose some of those parts. They 
they come unhinged because it's it's such a violence that is done to the person whether it's you know being in warfare or as you said point of betrayal it's um yeah I, yeah so there's a flippant use of it yeah which i'm not using there's also a very specific clinical definition that i'm also not using i'm using it much more similar to what you're talking about in the sense yeah. of like something that happens mm -hmm. that has a negative impact on me mm -hmm. for a length of time it's not yeah. like oh that hurt and then the next day i'm fine it's like no this is this has it, caused harm that and has it impacting becomes a my defining life. wound a defining element that you you can't get away from and um the thing that i have a very hard time with and hey, I should do a better job at accompanying people. But I have a very hard time with narcissists who cannot accompany people, and they will rank trauma and then dismiss yours if you're kind of if they uh, decide, oh, you're you're a one or a two out of five. Just pull up your socks, tighten your belt, and deal with life, you wimp. But I have a professor who calls that trauma <laughs> Olympics. <laughs> Gosh, these so narcissism is an, is another aspect of this because they end up being the ones who inflict and then dismiss and denigrate and hide. So that is a different level of, that's a different kind of pandemic that's that's going on, a moral one that we also don't know what to do with, and especially in the first world West, I think, but it's you know, human nature too. But that um, you may not, how do I say this? Even if you're not a level five, it may just be that that is the level of trauma that is the most painful for you. Let's say if we were to give it a one, it, it really doesn't matter because every human being is there is at their own level and if something is that difficult for you um that needs to be treated with that that honor and, and then that patience and everything that you've been doing this past you know this past season so we need to dismiss this sense of olympics um i don't know there, there's a whole discussion because we also that part of that is discussions about you know building up your own resilience learning to do the work getting that whoops getting the help that you need to you know start making sense of it but when you get statements like you just said the the hierarchy or whatever making that comment up in maryland it's like oh gosh it's 2023 and um not in the progressivist sense but it's like with everything that's happened just in the last 10 years for just, people to yes. think like that and still make comments like that i'm i got nothing yeah yeah so this so the the sense of like what does a new church look like and I think the little bit that I'm following in it and, and understand the Synod, mm -hmm. I think and I hope that a more synodal church is going to be the legacy of Pope Francis. I think a legacy that that's not only going to extend beyond his pontificate, but also that even um, also also a legacy that transcends him in the sense that he doesn't even always live up to it. He's proposing something. I think. A year ago, we had Mark Shehan, and he mm -hmm. talked about the bishops at Vatican II. He and he commented, "It's like it's like they showed up, and like the Holy Spirit moved them to make decisions that that they didn't quite understand and still had to to unpack." You know, and yeah. and yeah, and like he talked about how yeah that they all all the bishops voted that um, on the infinite value of human dignity and how institutions and organizations and politics need to serve human dignity. And then they all go back to their own diocese and they throw abuse survivors under the bus to protect the institution. And he's like, the teaching, but in a sense, transcended the people teaching it. 
And I think synodality, as I understand it, this real sense of like, that's not new mm -hmm. um, in, in the sense that it's not grounded in scripture and tradition and doesn't have historical precedent. It's new for our experience, but mm -hmm. not new in, in the church um, of this sense of real listening mm -hmm. and dialogue and collaboration specifically mm -hmm. with the recognition that the person you are listening to, um, and this is throughout Francis's teaching, the person mm -hmm. you are listening to is made in the image and likeness of God, is themselves a son or daughter of God. Mm -hmm. And, and that even if their life looks completely wrecked, mm -hmm. um, Christ is still like, they are still an image of Christ and Christ still identifies himself with them and the Holy spirit can mm -hmm. speak through them. And then if this person is baptized, mm -hmm. all of that, all the more, because they have been baptized, they are now altar Christus. They mm -hmm. are now another Christ. They are now a temple of the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of like dialogue must mean that you have to go into the dialogue with the presumption, God can speak through this person. I have something to learn from them. Not going into a dialogue already, already having the outcome in mind, already having the answers. And I think the heart of synodality, I think, and maybe as I read more, <laughs> change my mind. I think what it is, is that this reframing of the hierarchy where it isn't the hierarchy feeling like they have the power to tell people what to do, but that they go to the people, variety of people, especially the baptized, but not just the baptized, with the disposition that they can learn something from this person, with the disposition that this person is a son or daughter of the father, the Holy Spirit can speak through this person. And then the hierarchy makes a decision, right? The, the synod is not, and Francis has made this clear, it's not a democracy, it's not a parliament, it's not popular vote, but it is real humility on the part of leadership to listen with a disposition of learning and hearing God speak through people, even people they disagree with. And even if that's not, even if the Pope and the bishops don't live up to that fully, setting that as the goal is going to do, I hope that it does, yeah. real good. Um, at a local mm -hmm. level, like imagine if, imagine if a local bishop has that disposition, even if they do it imperfectly, but where they don't see themselves as already having all the answers, but rather going to people um, to hear their experiences in order to learn. Um, there's part of that also is, um, how do I say the sense of, of the fringe, right? We'll, we'll always be in a, dis in, in a sense of, of discovery for the fringe. Um, because the fringe is everything that you don't know you've missed. And so when we understand that the church is, um, ever developing and evolving her understanding of the deposit that's been gifted to her and re-articulating that in every generation uh, according to how that generation thinks to make a connection with them. If we, if we understand as 
um, I don't remember who it was who said this, but the job of every generation is translation. I think it was the Holy Father. We're always translating what we know into how it is known now to keep making it applicable and approachable and relevant to the new languages that people are speaking and like, and then just the political pressures and how that influences language and thought and identity and so on. But if we, if we understand that that is what the church is doing, then um, there will always be something that is missed. And so this sense of synodality, I think is, has to be, and this is not just my opinion, hooray, Holy Father, you're following my opinion, but like this model of how to go about being um, church means we're always in dialogue and discussion. Um, it's it's like any business who put out a project or a campaign or a plan, and then you run surveys. How did it go? What's the feedback? What do we all think? How did it work? And that's and then then you begin to learn from the people if what you thought you communicated actually landed. And I think that's one reason why our last century has been in kind of a theological upheaval because we're finally actually listening to corporate humanity like as a family and then realizing we have no idea what half of them are saying not just because of language barriers but because of different way of thinking you know barriers and and then in the church the added element that isn't just an added element but the added element that actually transforms the whole thing beyond just just i mean um surveys and feedback that transforms mm -hmm. that into something um greater categorically different yes is the belief that the holy spirit is actually speaking through the people of god and, and that that's where i was going to go thank you when the magisterium teaches yeah. it's actually protected yeah and, and guided that's a thing by that, the holy spirit that's a thing that i feel was given lip service to my whole life that sense of that the people of god and they're also a source of infallible teaching when if i'm getting this right when the people of god all together are united on something that's an indication of the holy spirit also confirming something it's like okay what do you do with that in a clericalist you know society that's that's that upends you know everything and that's where um i mentioned the regeneration podcast earlier because they're all about that fringe what are we what did we not know we've been missing and so they're out figuring that they do phenomenal conversations and stuff. Uh, and I don't say that just because they had me on there, but they make the one point that priests and the hierarchy have access to theology and, th and the fathers. The common person does not have access to any of that, not just because they can't get books. I mean, now we can, but in the past, we never did. And even today, you read that stuff and it's like, you know, I need someone to unlock this, unpack this for me. Like, what was it? The, uh, the person in scripture. But, um, what do the local people, the average Pusid, what do they have access to? The festivals and the feasts and the cycles of nature, creation herself, that primordial gospel. That is what we all have access to because that is that is the world that yeah. we are not just living. We're supposed to be attuned to and, and live in resonance with. And that's why creation is a critical part of this that has not been addressed for a long time. As you're talking, there's two two teachings that are coming to mind mm -hmm. that maybe will make sense. And I'm, I'm thinking as I'm speaking. Um, so, so one is we talked about this one with, um, we talked about this one in our episode on, on our episode on the, uh, the development of doctrine with Sean Blanchard. Um, so this is from Dave Verbum, um, section eight, 
and it says this. This tradition, which comes from the apostles, develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts, through a penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience, and through the preaching of those who have received the Episcopal succession, the sure gift of truth. For as the centuries secede one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. Okay, so holding that where, so, so where the church is saying, it is the entire people of God. It is all of the believers in their prayer and in their life and in their contemplation um, and the role of theologians and the role of bishops. The Holy Spirit acts through all of them to develop the church's tradition. Okay. Now I want to add that to in Gaudete et Exaltate, um, Rejoice and Be Glad from Pope Francis. He's talking about um, he's talking about the spiritual corruption of Gnosticism. Um, and he's talking about how um, so this is section 41 and 42. He says, when someone when, when somebody has an answer to every question, it is a sign that they are not on the right road. <laughs> Um, That's uh, trouble for smart Catholics. He says, uh, God infinitely transcends us and he is full of surprises. We are not the ones to determine when and how we will encounter him. The exact times and places of that encounter are not up to us. Someone who wants everything to be clear and sure presumes to control God's transcendence. And then he goes on and says this, nor can we claim to say where God is not because God is mysteriously present in the life of every person in a way that God himself chooses. And we cannot exclude by our presumed and we cannot exclude this by our presumed certainties, even when someone's life appears completely wrecked, even when we see it devastated by vices or addictions, God is present there. And if we let ourselves be guided by the spirit rather than our own preconceptions, we can and must try and find the Lord in every human life. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's something here combining both of these teachings with with this idea of synodality of the Holy Spirit works through the entirety of the church, even the peripheries, the fringes, even the, not just the economic fringes, but certainly yes, the poor, but also the, the moral fringes, yeah. um, the cultural fringes, the, um, the, the people we have intentionally or unintentionally excluded from mm -hmm. the heart of the community. God is present there and the Holy Spirit has something to mm -hmm. say to the church through them. Yeah. Um, and I think synodality is simply saying that's true and that's important. And so now we just need to start um, doing it, you know, and, and not just talk about it. Like you said, the fathers from the council, we don't understand exactly what we've put down here, but it's pretty transformative stuff. Now let's all go back. And at that point, like, well, now what? We're all back home and we, all we have is radio, perhaps, and television is starting. And, uh, you know, yeah, 60 years later, we have everything that we have now, you know, AI yeah. that can read PDFs and like, wow, let's get everybody to crowdsource this stuff. And that's, that's one reason why I have, as terrible as things are in so many ways, there's also so much hope and excitement because all of this tech 
and all of this communion that is being created in different ways around the world is also creating so much opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move. Um, yeah, and to inspire things. Or There's also the a meta. At the very least, it's creating opportunity for us to be able to encounter people. Yeah. To encounter people we wouldn't normally have been able to encounter and to encounter them in ways that we haven't previously been able to encounter them. Yeah. Two little thoughts sort of come to mind. Um, I guess metaphors. There's there's the this one mystical vision of Lady Wisdom fleeing from I think it was the temple, being chased by the dragon, you know, she flees out into the desert. Um and there's a bunch of different meanings, you know, to what that means. One of them is her, she's in exile, or we have exiled ourselves from her, you know, Mary from, from God. Um, but it can also mean something else. The desert is the fringe. It's all the places where Camelot is not, right? And if you take Camelot to be a metaphor for civilization and structured human living, and here's how we get it all right. And she flees from that because that's where the dragon also is. But what do you find out in the desert? It's not always empty. That's where Moses meets the burning bush. And uh, I've been watching, you know, Peterson's Bible series, and I've been riveted by this one conversation they had where they talked about, uh, somebody asked the question, why did God wait 400 years to save the Hebrew people? And there was one question or one response that makes all the sense in the world to me. And it's like, because in that time, nobody showed up or cultivated the capacity for response that Moses did. And as soon as Moses, with his lisping and his bad speech and his unwillingness to do anything, um, he gave God an inch and God blew Egypt wide open and changed the course of history, you know. But God will not save us without us. Yeah. And God will wait until somebody demonstrates to him or shows up with the openness to be used and to be his his tool and to be his hands and to be his heart and his eyes so that he can act with us he will not overwhelm us anymore now that we're in the the year of the lord you know maybe in the past we might have had a whole lot more miracles to kind of like hey this is real here now that christ is actually here we're like yeah he's in the tabernacle and um i'm still paying my taxes and i don't need to think about this anymore and and then we wonder why things aren't getting any better. It's because we're kind of keeping ourselves in a 400-year um, exile in Egypt. The, the image of the desert, um, that's interesting. So um, I listened to the, uh, um, it's called uh, The Bible Project. It's an excellent resource for scripture study. Um, it's not Catholic, but it's phenomenal. They, they have a series that they're working through now on dragons in scripture. Ooh, very um, and without turning this into a 20 minute explanation. Um, so there's symbols in especially the Old Testament throughout all of scripture that mean chaos. And chaos is kind of synonymous with death and sin. It's disorder and disintegration. So the deep abyss, the waters are considered, are associated with chaos, symbol for chaos. The desert, the wilderness is a symbol for chaos. And then dragons, sea monsters, these are the serpent um, is a symbol of chaos. So what they started with, though, was this discussion of ancient Mideast cultures 
-hmm. the Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, etc. They all you they all had this same symbology, especially of the dragon and chaos. Mm -hmm. And then when you understand the normal tropes or memes for how that was used at the time, then you see how the Old Testament writers subvert them and change them. And that gets interesting. So what they do is they say, one of the big subversions is, you know, the good God would go to battle with the, the symbol of chaos and they'd get beat to a pulp. Sometimes they'd lose, um, but sometimes they'd win. But when God's portrayed going to battle against chaos, mm-hmm. it's not even a contest. God yeah. always wins. Mm-hmm. But the other way that it's that image, that trope is subverted, God uses, because these images of chaos are themselves creatures of God. God mm-hmm. uses symbols of chaos to defeat chaos. Mm-hmm. So like Moses goes into the wilderness and discovers God in the wilderness, even though the wilderness is a place of chaos. And that, that, I mean, Jesus did that. That's throughout scripture. But then Moses is given a staff that turns into what? A serpent, which is a symbol of chaos to go and confront Pharaoh, who is presented as this living serpent, this, this, this living image of chaos. Um, That God takes the chaos that's going on and somehow mysteriously through it mm-hmm. brings about um goodness yes in some way and for all of my symbology and sacramental geeks out there i just want to riff on that just a little bit because i think it's applicable each like you say there's an accepted symbology for a lot of them for, for a lot of these things that common parlance of how the ancient world you know thought in a lot of this they would not have thought of these things as negative. They would have thought of them as uh, also as positive. Um, there's a point at which with a lot of these symbols where we can't think of them on a line, good over here, bad over here, we have to think of them as a yin-yang symbol. And like if you have too much order, you end up with tyranny. Jordan Peterson's very big on all this sort of thing too. Um, too much order creates tyranny. Too much chaos creates disorder, a, a nightmare. So you need the thin line of tension between them the ability to add some chaos and to shake things up. And hey, that's what you get the Hebrew Jubilees. Um, you need the ability to create that order to orient the people and give them the safety to breathe, to function and, and to live. Um, it's like if you, you take a lot of these symbols and if you don't follow the circle all the way around back to God, you don't understand what these uh, symbols function, what they were intended to mean, what they do mean. Like the serpent isn't just a symbol for chaos. Chaos is a needed element of life that we must learn to live with same thing with us today we can't deal with the amount of chaos that's coming at us from the culture that means we the the, the demand then is we have to develop either a sense well we have to develop a sense of resilience and a sense of accompaniment and that is the particular charism that we have to cultivate today um which is to stop trying to shove camelot on everything or order the the order that we love that somebody else does not want and what they bring feels chaotic and dangerous and of the evil one but we can't think like that anymore that's where we begin to sense oh everything that i'm afraid of like you mentioned dragons the whole point of a dragon is it sits on a hoard a hoard of gems the only way i get that or get access to that is if i face that that problem that dragon it teaches me something about myself i grow by overcoming that that problem um 
But if I leave problems or, you know, the desert, chaos and evil, and if I leave them there, um, I'm never going to truly understand them. But if we can understand deep wisdom animates all of these things, let's, let's side by the whole discussion of evil. Deep wisdom, divine wisdom animates all of these things. Uh, from underneath it's like let's just keep going keep digging i love this one visual metaphor of you know everybody used to be terrified of the abyss the abyss was evil the abyss was dark everything emerged some magical how from the abyss and all the ancient mythologies were, were terrified of this but if you were to imagine diving down deep into that what would you find you'd find little fish glinting in the darkness schools of fish and those would be the christians diving down deep unafraid of these mystical depths because they would understand the abyss is wisdom. It's the profundity of God that is night and darkness to those who aren't ready to, to travel through that, enter into that. And yeah, I probably just totally derailed us, but <laughs> that sense of when you allow the fringe to communicate to you, you're also recognizing I have everything to learn. And if I have everything to learn, I have to be extremely patient with myself and my biases. And we need to create a culture that is no longer um, tribalist and defensive and scared. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very hard to do. Um, and I think I'm right up there with everybody I, trying to figure that out. I mean, but we have to start with where am I tribalistic and defensive yeah. and scared? Like mm -hmm. where, who are the fringes that I am afraid? Um, I won't encounter God in yeah and and through and you know i think to to go the other way for the mental health of all of this for some people i think it's also really important to reiterate um that there is also a humility that we need to have with with the, the boundaries of this yes we're called to accompaniment and patience and understanding for everything everybody's been through absolutely the holy spirit is capable of communicating if we have the ears and eyes to hear and see and so on but that doesn't mean that it's on us to save everybody. We got to be careful of the whole, you know, Messiah complex that can then kind of enter in because there are these, uh, there are narcissists who will bleed you dry out there of, out of your attention, your empathy, your commiseration. Not everybody is, if I were to say your mission field, absolutely. You have to start with you. And then it is your call who else you choose to engage with. So you can't engage with everybody. Yeah, earlier in the summer, um, one of the readings in the lectionary, and I mentioned this on one of the earlier episodes this season, was uh, the parable of uh, the wheat and the weeds. I was going to say. Yeah. And the zealous servant who wants to pull up all the weeds and yeah. like be the savior and fix all the problems. Mm -hmm. And Jesus' response, <laughs> which is me. Uh, and Jesus' response to me is... Uh, to wait um, yeah. and to trust that he is both good yeah. and that and that he will he will solve the problem which which isn't a instruction I, I don't think to be lax or like passive mm -hmm. but it's an instruction to ultimately see fixing the thing mm -hmm. is ultimately not in my control right uh, um, I mean, you're still cultivating a field of wheat even though you have no control over all the weeds, 
he's not saying, okay, everybody back off. Let's not do anything. No, the harvest is massive. So we're still in there. Maybe you're cutting yourself on the thorns or whatever, but you're still trying to salvage the wheat. And I think a counterpoint then, heck, if one could throw parables against each other, which is probably a bad <laughs> idea. But there's also, he's just as emphatic, don't throw your pearls before swine. If somebody is not in a position to hear, they're unwilling to hear it, don't communicate. If they, maybe you are not the person that's meant to communicate something to that person. And maybe a boundary uh, is also needed or to a community or something. And that's where... That's where I think we have the the hope in the Holy Spirit. If not me, and there's the the what is it? Um, if not me, who? If not now, when? But yes, there's also God grant me the grace to know the difference between where I should be and and where I where it's not applicable. Yeah. You know. So then, moving towards wrapping up. Um, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're just having fun. Yeah. I maybe to bring this together. Um, I think that sense of hope is so at the beginning you had brought up the question, um, the church is a mess. Uh, why stay? And I, I, I don't presume to answer that question for anybody else, but to answer that question for me is, mm -hmm. uh, because I've experienced God's goodness through the church and through the sacraments. And I believe that that's true. And because I believe um, that the Lord has called me to, within my circles of influence, within the um, gifts and skills he's given me, to tend a part of that field um, mm -hmm. in a particular way and to help make the church healthier and better in a particular way. Um, and I don't, for me... I don't know of any other reason to stay. Mm -hmm. um, it, and like, ultimately it comes down to this hope that God is good. Mm -hmm. And that even if I only see mess and harm and weeds, and if I only see people in positions of authority, still, still choosing institutional self-protection over the dignity of human human beings that the lord is still working and that he's still good and that at the end of the day uh he will separate the wheat and the weeds mm -hmm. um that's it yeah i think when like that last point there when everything is dark and the lights are out then the question is, who are you? And uh, like you had this wonderful conversation with Deacon Gray Donis about the need for good stories. You know, that's the only way we turn around pretty much anything is with good stories. Because uh, those are like patterns of identity and action that we agree on and we love. And, and the story we have is a story of a God who actually died. And when things felt absolutely hopeless, was when he won. Yeah. And I'll riff on that. You know, it wasn't just that he died, but that um, he had a call and he didn't put it down, even though it killed him or he was killed for it. You know, so we may, we'll probably continue to see the hierarchy doing all kinds of problems and issues for the next 
however thousand years or forever because it's made up of human beings and humans like to protect ourselves and we get defensive and um so then the question i think will always be if that's what's going on who are you do we rail against them um get on you know angry twitter um or do we find out, you know, what is the next right thing that I need to be doing here? And if you have a calling or you have skills or you have gifts or you can anything, if you have a skill perhaps, and if it feels obvious to you that you need to do something, find out what it is, build a team, find some friends. Maybe the point is not, dang it, look at them messing things up again and ruining the pool for everybody. But it's like, I think that's just the call for creative uh, collaboration with the Holy Spirit in every era is what are you going to do about it? And, and I, I think to add on to that or to make one adjustment to that is the first step is to ask God what he wants, what he wants there me to go. do with it. It has to begin with that inner room, that, that inner silence. I think if like I've been trying to, you know, since I was looking at the show notes and I saw your answer, like, why stay, you know? My family members have walked away like, I just can't, I can't be involved in this anymore. It's, it's, it's just too big a problem to swallow. And so I've been wondering, well, why do I stay? And I mean, I know I love the thing, but hey, maybe that's just because I'm used to it. Maybe I'm biased towards it. Um, but I've been, if I were to give an answer for me, it would be not because the church is, is two things at the same time. It's a hierarchy made up of people and memberships, and it's a, it's a sort of a, a tribal understanding or, or thing, community. But at the same time, it it's a um, communion with the presence of God that is actively seeking communion with all of creation and every single person in it. So being Catholic is uh, it's a radical acceptance of God and creation and everything. And if that's the case, then every other, for example, religion or philosophy is a part of a bigger whole. And so it might have something valuable to contribute. And every person, if God is, not if, since God is active and alive in them, therefore they are an aspect of God. And if I'm committing myself to all of reality, ultimate reality, to everything, um, then where else? can we go who else has the words of eternal life there's nothing else so to me there is nowhere else to go my answers might be a little weird and i'm still trying to formulate them but it seems to me the only real answer that that makes sense to me and therefore there's nothing to be afraid of because if you're like able or willing to be in love with everything and still practical and not kind of woo about it um yeah, then there's nothing to be afraid of. And again, fear not is like the oft and most repeated thing throughout all of scripture. So I'm banking on that. Yeah. Well, you have to go in a couple of minutes and my kids are going to be home from school in a couple of minutes. Um, I wanted to give a quick update. Um, oh yeah, what uh, are you working on? So we're taking a break for a couple of months, a little bit yeah. of a longer break. So you're working on new things. Yes. So um, I plan to bring to bring this back season five i already have uh notes on my phone of the guests who, who i want to have on um but it's going to be probably two or two or three months my semester i i graduate in may this final year is 
it's, it's a lot between school and internship. So um, I need two or three months off to focus on that. Um, but then uh, I do have a workshop coming up. Um, that's probably the end of October, beginning of November, um, doing a five-part workshop, reading mm -hmm. through a Fratelli Tutti, um, which we are coming up on the, the third year anniversary of. Um, yeah, which is fantastic. So um, spend five weeks going through that. I will be, I'll be advertising, sign up for that and um, the syllabus for that uh, here in the next few weeks. Um, and then in November, I'm leading a Catholic social teaching retreat down uh, in Memphis, which will be fantastic. Uh, so I'm still doing things, but, but the podcast is going to take a sabbatical for a few months. So in this interim time period, you know, this is, this is a call to everybody who's enjoying the show and who's following us. Um, I have continued to meet people who have kind of done what we've asked. They've enjoyed this show. They've dropped comments. They've joined the community. They've sent myself private messages. Paul, they've probably sent them to you too. A whole Many. bunch of them. They're absolutely amazing people. I'm so um, pleased and honored to be meeting all of these people. I think with you, you can get this sense that this is something that's important. I mean, we're going to continue doing it as long as we can, because we also believe it's incredibly important. We think we're doing, we're contributing something that's needed because we can't find it anywhere. Uh, maybe you feel the same way too. So if you do, here's how you can help. You know, we are volunteering our time. So if you're able to volunteer a gift, uh, some financial amount, like 10 bucks a month, that can be pretty transformative, especially if, say, 100 of us get together and, and do this. We can't do this kind of thing without you. I mean, we can't grow this podcast. We can't reach new people, um, maybe do more interesting things. But at the very least, keep it going. So strongly encourage everybody. Please head over to PopeFrancisGeneration.com. Start a, a subscription. Um, that's going to put money in Paul's pocket so that he can continue to spend time building the courses and building Father's Heart Academy. And hey, I'll ask for smart Catholics too, because it's also a labor of love. Um, if you can also consider five bucks, 10 bucks a month, whatever, could be a one-off gift. That helps me cover costs, helps us continue to volunteer this time. Um, you're out there, you know, all of you incredible people. Um, we need to build this with you because we can't do it alone. We've gone as far as we can, given the effort that we have, uh, the skills that, and the tech and the stuff that we have, uh, here's how you can help. Um, join us, help us build this community, join the academy, join Paul's Substack, and if you're able, um, help us out. So I think let's and, wrap there. Yeah. All right, so friends, again, as always, if you liked this video, uh, hit the like button and hit the subscribe button. Check the links in the description to head over to popefrancisgeneration.com. That way, like I said, you can join the Academy um, and you can help donate. Again, Smart Catholics, it's a free online community we're building for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners just like you who want faithful conversations just like this one, unafraid of doubts and questions. And we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity, which is 99.9% .9 of the time. We're getting better all the time. Uh, so check us out, smartcatholics.com. Till next time, friends, we'll see you next season. Say a short prayer for yourself and for us, and remember... Don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply.